Well, ladies and gentlemen, um, we uh, fall break has um, has utterly decimated us, and um, I uh, I am gradually coming to the conviction that um, schools uh, are becoming the antichrist. <laughs> they they are robbing us of our parishioners and um, taking them away for hunks of, of time, as we were just complaining about over here. Um, some schools have as much as even two weeks off. They're on the year-round year schedule. And, um, and other schools, you know, have different fall times and breaks and such. So our congregation essentially does not gather together until the end of October which we're glad to see that we are going to gather together at the end of October um, for our Reformation dinner. Um, indicated that um, we've got, we will probably have close to 450 people at our Reformation dinner alone, to say nothing of possibly who might be coming to the service. So, um, Monty Weimer was saying that probably what we should do is have a Reformation dinner every Sunday. We were thinking about that. Um, we would like to welcome back to our congregation as visitors, um, Pastor and Mrs. Mayer. This is Mark Mayer's mom and dad, and they're sitting all by themselves alone at that table over there. So if they look, if they look too lonely or if you see Pastor Mayer falling asleep, please go over and sit with him. He, he doesn't fall asleep very often. Let's, um, let's turn for our devotion to 1 Peter, Galatians, Ephesians. <sighs> we, um, the reason for why it is that we're just kind of taking our time to go through Peter is um, there is a, there's a certain kind of parallelism that seems to be going on with us in our Christian faith. But I also have provided you with a timeline today, and we're going to talk just a little bit about um, that and the, the timing of the, uh, the Reformation. You see the 1517 post there, Luther protests the sale of indulgences and posts the 95 Theses on the door of the Wittenberg Church. That would be October 31st of this month, 500th anniversary, as you know. Okay. Um, should we um, start with a prayer? <clears throat> oh, dear Lord and Savior, we pray that our faith would ever remain pure and clear, but teach us also to distinguish between those two kingdoms, the kingdom of the left and the kingdom of the right, that our church might not be a church that tries to be able to accomplish your mission by means other than your word itself. Teach us that the kingdom of God consists of a righteousness and a grace that the world does not possess, that through you there is the power of going beyond the door of death and that this is not possible in the temporal kingdom. Remind us that the temporal kingdom is second to the greater spiritual kingdom, for we are to seek first the kingdom of God and your righteousness. And we pray that everything else would follow. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.
All right. Uh, we got to, just in case, I have to get visual. So open this up. Okay. Everybody found First Peter. Um, we're going to take it at um, at verse uh, chapter two, verse thirteen. Uh, the thematically, it fits so well with what uh, we were preaching on today. Um, all right. Uh, what we could do is. Um, Let's take it down from 13 down through 17. Are you ready to read with me? You read too. Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every authority instituted among men, whether to the king as the supreme authority or to governors who are sent by him to punish those who do wrong and to commend those who do right. For it is God's will that by doing good you should silence the ignorant talk of foolish men. Live as free men, but do not use your freedom as a cover-up for evil. Live as servants of God. Show proper respect to everyone. Love the brotherhood of believers. Fear God and honor the king. Now, this is... Um, this is the Apostle Peter, who um, is telling us that we should respect all uh, properly constituted authority. And, and this, is, this is, we talk about these two kingdoms, the kingdom of the right and the kingdom of the left, where God actually rules, he rules through both kingdoms. And there's, of course, a question. The temporal authorities why in the world would we submit to temporal authorities? Um, what are some of the examples that we might have of, of things that the apostles uh, encountered? They were brought before the Sanhedrin, which was, um, these were the, the probably more so driven by the high priests in Jerusalem, but they were given temporal authority. And look what it is that they did. They said, stop preaching about Christ. What did the apostles do? They said, we must obey God rather than Man, what's that hum? Air conditioner. Has it ever hummed before? You are window sitters. You should know whether or not the thing has hummed before. It may, maybe it's going out. Huh? What, about, what about temporal authorities when they appear to be wrong? Like, for instance, Martin Luther is being told by the emperor, I mean, they, he's told to recant. Was Luther wrong in standing up against the demands of the Roman emperor when he told him that he had to take back all the things that he had written? What do you think? Of course not. He, you, you can't be a good Lutheran and say he was wrong, right? 
Do you think that Luther handled that in the right way? Do you think that Luther was maybe a bit hot-headed? We just kind of a, well, I don't, you know. I mean, I, by modern-day standards, Luther would probably be considered to be an individual who was kind of an insubordinate guy, right? He, Martin had a, a fiery disposition, and he would fire off all kinds of letters and whatever else not that would be, well, Mark, you're here. You, there is somebody who's sitting with the mayors now. It's another mayor, but... Um, yeah, Luther, um, Luther, however, was also a person who had a very strong belief in submission to temporal authority. He is brought before this Cajetan, who is this uh, cardinal. And this cardinal is going to come in and wear his long, flowing red robes. And Martin Luther is told by his, uh, his advisor, uh, just when you get there, bow down and just listen to what it is that he has to say, say and don't argue. And of course, Luther gets there and he starts getting his lecture and pretty soon the fires build and the fires build and the fires build and finally just Luther just lets it loose. And he's indignant over the fact that well, the Roman Catholic Church has usurped the authority of the Scriptures and is actually upholding to a doctrine of salvation which is contrary to the Word of God. So what do you do uh, when this temporal authority that's over you, do you, do you call for some sort of a insurrection? Do you demand that they be removed from office? Well, what Luther did do is that he basically was willing to accept whatever it is that was dished out against him as long as, and, but he could not stop himself from speaking. In other words, you don't call for insurrection. What you do is you stand up and you say what you believe to be the truth and if then they punish you for that, you accept the punishment. You go to prison or you accept death if need be. But you don't engage in insurrection. And that's where Luther was, he got into this trouble where you had the peasants who started to revolt and they thought that Martin Luther was the guy who was supposed to lead the peasants' revolt. They thought, he's setting us free, right? And he's, by this, this guy who could stand up in front of the emperor and who could say, unless I'm convinced from Holy Scriptures, I cannot and will not repent. God help me, amen, you know, and walks out. Well, if Luther could do that, we can do that with our nobles too, and we're going to tell them that they don't have any right to take taxes from us. We're going to tell them that they have no right to tell us whether or not we can live on this land or not. And the peasants rose up in great numbers. There was a a brewing thing that was happening all through Europe at this time. And they rose up and they said, let's take over. And they started killing the nobility. They started killing those who had been the rulers over them. And Luther wrote a tract against the peasants, telling them not to do this, not to revolt, to submit to these authorities. 
And so he blasted the peasants, and then he turned around and he blasted the nobility for the fact that the nobility had essentially caused this resentment on the part of the peasants. And so consequently, both the nobility and the peasants didn't like him. Many people did, obviously. But at the same time, Luther was always saying, you show your submission to authority, but you accomplish your, your ends in different ways. One is by actually going through authority to do what you want those authorities to accomplish, and the other is by your prayers. You pray for those who are in authority. This was tough, and it has been tough on a lot of people in our country when it comes to our presidents, right? Half the country was what? Maybe more than half was looking at the presidency of Barack Obama and just going, Arr. then Barack Obama steps down and Donald Trump gets in, and another part of the huge part of the country is going, Arr. let's bring him down, let's bring him down. And both sides are both taking this idea that you, you take this guy down whatever way that you possibly can. What do Christians do? We speak, we're honest, we can critique, but we never engage in rebellion. We never try to overthrow. So um, Peter says this. It's just very simple. Submit yourself for the Lord's sake to every authority... How do we interpret the fourth commandment? Who all is included in parents under the fourth commandment? Number one, and most importantly, which I want to impress upon you very greatly today, is your pastor. <laughs> parents, temporal authorities, such as your policeman, your mayor, town council, whatever it might be, your teachers, especially in school. Um, Luther says we, we can never repay our parents, our teachers, for all that they have done, uh, and they are very seldom um, compensated, paid, equal to the contribution that they make in, in our education. But we are, according to the fourth commandment, to show authority. Uh, submission to every kind of authority. Instituted among men. Kind of a, um, a clause there. When do we have the right to rebel against authority? You say, well, wait a minute. Well, you just said that you can't. When authority has not been properly instituted. So another country invades your country. This is not a properly constituted authority. Do we have the right to become gun-toting Texans? Everybody likes to become a gun-toting Texan, right? Um, yeah, the, we, do we have the right to be able to become guerrillas? If it's not properly constituted, that's true. So... The question sometimes, you know, it used to be, according to the old laws, um, the old ancient laws, if you conquered your enemy, that meant that you had been given the right by the gods, 
a god, gods, plural, that, that you have been given the right to actually rule over them. And so the Romans kind of used that. They said, all right, if we have conquered the Gauls or if we've conquered the Germans, if we've conquered the British Isles, that means that God gave them to us and we therefore are the properly constituted authorities. It's a little tough if you think about that. What, what then is properly constituted? Is, are the Catalonians in Spain, you know those people up there in the area of Spain that's prosperous, uh, they want to secede, right? They see themselves as being a separate people. They don't see themselves as being Spaniards. They're, they are Catalon Catalonians, right? You say that right? Catalonians? Okay. They, they see themselves as being kind of a, a separate people, and they want to be able to secede from Spain. Do they have that right? All in favor of the Spaniards? <laughs> you guys, are, have, you, have, you, you, have you come down on this side at all? But see, the idea of being properly constituted, at what point, I mean, at what point do you say this is the group of people that have the right to properly constitute themselves? And now, if we want to go into the other kingdom, the kingdom of the right, um, do we have the right to be Missouri Synod Lutherans? Should we be just merely Lutherans, or should we be actually a division of the Roman Catholic Church as Lutherans? Do they have some sort of a prior right because they were before us? Martin Luther was a Roman Catholic, wasn't he? Do they have a right to actually say, no, this kingdom is ours? And that was the debate. Can you say, no, we have an inalienable right to hear the gospel and to receive the sacraments in their purity, and therefore, if those cannot be given to us, if you are going to persecute those uh, this in, within our domain, then we have to withdraw. Why is it that Lutherans don't really like the word Protestant? Because we can't spell it? <laughs> yes. Right. One is, one is a reactive, reactive word. You're protesting. But more than that, I think, is that the Protestant Reformation became much more of a political reformation. In England, you have Henry the... Henry VIII splits off and becomes the head of the church. See, this is the reason why you should be Germans and not English. <laughs> yeah, she, you, that's right. You at least redeemed yourself by marrying one. That, that. Actually, the name Latimer, the, uh, Hugh Latimer was a great uh, uh, confessor, basically, uh, of Lutheranism in England. It's just that anytime the word Luther was used, it always had kind of a negative connotation because the English don't like the Germans. So, Anyway, uh, so much for prejudice. Um, <laughs> but now, uh, what, happened, uh, what happened in uh, Geneva? John Calvin. John Calvin's Reformation. 
he was there for the purpose of what part of his so-called theological reformation brought about also a change to the morals of the time in the people. And kind of like the old days when in early America with the Puritans, you remember how it is that the Puritans started using basically the secular power as a state to punish people who they considered to be living outside of the boundaries of morality. And this is not something that was Lutheran. They, would separ they did not separate the kingdoms in the same way that Martin Luther saw this as taking place. Uh, how about uh, Roman Catholicism? We're going to see here in the history here, if you take a look, if you go down um, to uh, 1531, the Small Caldic League. The Small Caldic League is formed by Lutheran princes to defend Lutheran lands from the papists. This is something that Luther did not agree with. They were using, they, they saw themselves as being Lutheran. Yes, that's very nice. We appreciate that. But they also decided that they had to defend themselves against papacy. Now, it was in uh, Brunswick, in Brunswick, in Wolfenbüttel, in, um, that Henry was persecuting Lutherans. He was Roman Catholic, and he was actually doing some terrible things. He attacked a city called Guslar and various other cities, and they decided, we have to deal with this guy because he's a Roman Catholic who's acting in this way. Um, it's a little tough when you are watching the other side with its political agenda that is a religious-political agenda. Um, it's a little tough for us when we see, for instance, abortion becoming the, uh, the agenda of what we would call secular humanism. Don't, don't kid yourself. Secular humanism is a religion. It is an anti-religion. And secular humanism uh, is using the state for the purpose of, uh, say, for instance, advancing the cause of abortion. And for us, our inclination is to turn around and to go into the state in order to fight them with our own political agenda. And that's, in great part, what has happened within our country. You find Christian groups who are engaged in political activity in order to try to offset this. This whole idea, too, of the agenda today, of the moral agenda, uh, advancing and promoting homosexuality and uh, homosexuality with its rights, you know, adoption of children and various other things, which we find to be very, very, very uh, questionable, if not morally repugnant. Um, the Small Caldic League sees Henry take his armies in order to advance a political cause, I mean, a, a religious cause. And so the temptation is to turn around and to say, we've got to form our own armies, which they did. And they attacked, and they defeated Henry, and he went vamoose. But the first thing that happens then is that the papacy immediately puts up the funds for Charles V to bring the armies against these Lutherans and crush the Reformation. You'll see here what they, what they did. The Pope grants to Charles 200,000 Krontaler and 12,000 Italian soldiers as well as 500,000 Krontaler from cloisters in Spain to help pay for the war on Lutherans. 
Um, have, have any of you seen, perhaps on Facebook, um, that there are groups within um, Roman Catholicism today that are accusing the Pope of the heresy of being a Lutheran? <laughs> have you heard this? Yeah, um, the word heretic and Lutheran are the same word. In, now, this is actually true. If you were in Spain, if you were called a Lutheran, they weren't thinking of your confession. They were thinking only of you as a heretic. You were a person who was believing things that were heretical against the Roman Catholic Church. So it, they, they co-opted the word Lutheran and made it into, it's kind of like sounding like if you heard the word uh, child abuser. And all you have to do is say, um, hey, those guys over there up in Germany, they're child abusers. People go, whoa, that's terrible, you know. The word Lutheran came to mean heretic. And so now, of course, when they decide that they're going to accuse the Pope of heresy, which usually means that he's loosening up a little bit on the morals of the church or letting divorced people to become members, you know, communing members of the church, he's a Lutheran. So don't, don't be fooled by the idea that he has been considering embracing Martin Luther and the Reformation. That's, that's not the case. All right. Uh, so uh, the Pope is financing wars. Are, are, are you required to be obedient to a Pope who does this? And when you say he, there's a confusion of the kingdoms, when that confusion takes place, here's When that confusion takes place and that line gets lost, suddenly it is no longer this. Because this does not ride upon the authority of this. I said at the end of my sermon, I think I said, I think I wanted to say, um, I wanted to say, in our, in our modern day world, you know, no, we don't have, it isn't like, when you go over to, say, a country like Belgium or whatever it might be, I haven't been there, but you go, you go and you walk through down the street and you see beautiful Roman Catholic churches and beautiful monasteries and you come to see the incredible wealth that this church had and how even now, you know, you go, to, you go past a Lutheran church and there'll be three old ladies that'll be in there for the service and you go down the street and there's a Roman Catholic church in the middle of the day and they're coming for church and their church is being filled up and they're celebrating a sacrament. And you're going, what the heck is going on here? Is, is it the case that if you see lots of people, that that means that that therefore is a spiritual kingdom? And you say today, well, just go take a look at the big box churches that are springing up all over our country and you see where the dynamics are going. And almost all of it, this, I, you know, I say to our, to our losing Lutherans, I say, do you realize that you're giving up your baptism? Do you realize that you're giving up the real presence of the Lord's Supper? Do you really realize that you're giving up the office of the keys? And it's like, but this is where my kids enjoy it. I mean, my kids have been having fun. 
Besides, they've got a jungle gym out there where the kids can go out and play. And besides, my friends go there. And haven't you, have you ever seen Starbucks coffee in a Lutheran church? No way. That's where it's really at. Uh, when the church, we today have constructed a new kind of standard about temporal authority where authority is where it's happening, success. And wherever things are happening, that must be where it is that the kingdom of God is to be found. Jesus says it's not to be found. You can't say here, low here, low there. The kingdom of God is among you. It's hidden. It's contained in the word. It's contained in the sacraments. It is in a place where very often you will find that very few people can find it. Jesus didn't say that the broad and easy road was the road that would lead to heaven. He said it was very rough and very rocky. And it's a very narrow path. You've got to enter by that little narrow door. So, anyway, okay, let's go back here. Let's just have kind of a, a brief look here at this sequence. <clears throat> if we kind of pick this up, most of us are kind of aware of the major Lutheran things. Where Luther, you know, in 1521, that's when he goes before Emperor Charles V. And then in, in, as he leaves, he is spirited off to the Wartburg Castle. And then from there, he spends kind of a, basically almost a year. Uh, and then in 1525, which really blew the lid off of things, Luther gets married. And this was, a, this was really, 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 for this day, this was really radical that Luther would get married. Not only does he, he sanctify the institution of marriage, but really in doing so, he is saying that this is the highest calling, not a monastery. It's hard for us to, to imagine that a monastery would be to be preferred to marriage. Well, if you'd like, here's my solve, you can live with this woman for the rest of your life, or there's a cold cell over here <laughs> with uh, a few whips in the room, if you'd like, uh, instead. Um, it wasn't just that, of course. It was also the fact that, that uh, many of these people would have uh, larger families. They couldn't give the farm to everybody. Uh, so marriage was actually considered to be almost a luxury, because it was assumed that you would have enough assets that you could afford not just the, the, a wife, but that you could afford uh, your children and their professional advancement and the income that you needed. And really, it became an act of faith. And what happened was, in the Reformation, they married, and then they had children, and then they educated them in schools, and suddenly, Germany got a middle class. The burghers the cities, the prosperity, the learning, the culture, the development, music, art, literature, all of this just blossomed. It came hand in hand with families, and in great part, the sanctified state of marriage was something that was actually something that came from Luther. So, um, yeah, uh, how many things can we attribute to Martin Luther? Well, 
certainly there were many others that were involved in the Reformation. Well, you know, of course, if, if education now is, is becoming, religious education becomes supremely important, Luther does his small catechism. And then they begin the, to work on the Augsburg Confession, which then is presented in 1530. Luther couldn't go because he was under the imperial ban, and so he goes to a place called Coburg. I think we brought in a guy who made a presentation in Coburg, he and a friend of his, and they discussed how Luther, from this fortress, which was the southernmost part of Saxony, Luther is there kind of sending messengers and kind of leading them in their Augsburg Confession. But um, the, um, the, the Augsburg Confession becomes kind of, you might say, almost the Constitution. What is it that we believe? And in that statement of belief, they are not claiming for themselves any of this. And it's purely this. It is word of God and a pure gospel of grace and the rightful understanding and use of the Lord's sacraments. And where they said you find this, that is where it is that you will find the true visible church. It is not to be found in the visible signs of buildings, not to be found in the visible signs of gold or clergy or clothing. It is to be found solely wherever we hear the voice of the shepherd. You, you, this is a, a tough one. My... my uh, my daughter was going to, um, was up in Minnesota, and she went to a church that um, the pastor was faithful, and the congregation was pretty doggone dead. Um, you walk in, and, um, and I think the uh, the average age of the congregation was probably somewhere around 75 or 80. Nothing against 75 and 80 year olds, but getting there myself. But um, but you know that where the children and you have Sunday school programs and you have you know uh, child facilities and such, and you, and and you go there and you go, this you know there's nobody our age or our kids don't have anybody that they're going to go to Sunday school with. The question is. What you hear. And can you bring yourself to that congregation and contribute of yourself to make that maybe even more enjoyable or make it better for other people? But nevertheless, if where two or three are gathered, there am I in the midst of them. So, um, yeah, they, um, they had a, a little different perspective. Now, uh, things kind of, um, I guess you might say, begin to, uh, there's a solidification. The, the Small Caldic League is defeated by Charles V. He brings not just Italian, but he also brings Spanish soldiers up to fight the Duke of Alba, uh, who is this amazing general. Uh, defeats the duke. 
So that now in 1547, uh, with the betrayal of what they call Maurice, who was the Duke of Saxony, who switched sides, he was also called the Judas of Meissen. Um, he switches sides, and most of Lutheran Germany is gone, and the center, the holdout city of all the cities is called Magdeburg. And that's where it is eventually that you will find that the formula of Concord is pretty much penned in Magdeburg. But these interims ensue, and this is now the next temporal authority issue that the Lutherans have to deal with. Because now that you've been conquered, according to the ancient laws, right, your conqueror has the right to tell you what to do. Philip Melanchthon, uh, Luther's ally here, and you have to kind of feel for him. Because it was one of those, we're going to let you have it with both barrels if you don't do what we tell you to do. And he sounds a little bit like Abraham when Abraham is standing on the outside of Sodom and Gomorrah pleading with God, and God says, I'm going to destroy the whole thing. And Abraham says, well, you know, if there are 75 people there, will you destroy it? No, I won't destroy it for 75. Well, if there are 50 people, would you destroy it? Oh, no, no, all right, I won't destroy it for 50. Well, if there, are not, if there are 10 people, would you destroy it? And he kind of negotiates God down on God's destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. Well, Melanchthon kind of does this with the papacy, with the emperor. And it's, well, I tell you what, how about if we, if we as Lutherans accept this and we'll accept you telling us we have to do this and we'll do that, well, we won't, not, maybe not this, but we'll, how about this? And he went through and he made a whole bunch of compromises that um, didn't please anybody. Roman Catholics didn't like it because he was compromising. The Lutherans, we call them the, 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 uh, the what was the word? the old Lutherans, the, um, the Genesio Lutherans, the, the true Lutherans, um, the original Lutherans, uh, the hard guy Lutherans and girls. Um, they said, we, we're, this is, this, we're not going to do it. And they imprisoned a number of Lutheran pastors. Uh, some of them had to flee uh, with their families, they would flee back up north where the imperial forces had not quite had as big of a stronghold. Magdeburg is, is an example. And so uh, in, order to, uh, in order to crush this uh, so-called passive rebellion, um, Maurice of Saxony comes up against Magdeburg, and you'll see here um, the... Um, the 1547, the Augsburg Interim, that's that so-called um, loosey-goosey uh, temporal uh, measure that was put into place by Melanchthon and others. But, you know, look at what, what is in caps there, what Melanchthon does. The doctrine of justification is changed to include renewal. So what's so wrong with that? Justification... We are justified by grace through faith when we are renewed. Which means when we start doing 
good works. And of course, the definition of a good work varies. You know, it's not just Ten Commandments, it's good works that the church defines as good works. When Melanchthon said that, or when Melanchthon accepted that, he was trying to find a way to be able to say, you could probably say under his breath, we know that good works follow after faith, so why don't we just keep quiet and say that renewal is a part of justification so that the Roman Catholics won't beat up on us anymore. And uh, I think the Roman Catholics knew that the Lutherans were probably not very sincere about this, and the Lutherans knew that they, in the end, the real Lutherans, that they could never accept this. They stood their, their ground against it. Well, uh, those of you that have been on a trip to Einbeck know that it was one of the cities that helped to def defy the interim. Hundreds of pastors are imprisoned, banished, deposed. Some are executed. And then Maurice, sensing the refusal and the impossibility of imposing the Augsburg interim, uses Melanchthon. Move the page. That's at the bottom. Now it's at the top. Another interim agreement called the Leipzig interim as a substitute. And of course, true Lutherans, Genesio Lutherans everywhere are appalled at the great reformer being so spineless. And they said he barters away eternal truth for temporal peace. So, um, yeah, how, how do we reckon with this? And they did not necessarily go into, they did not raise armies, they did not uh, start uh, killing the local Roman Catholic priests, they did not engage in what we would describe as um, insurrection. They just simply said, either we're going to take it, we're going to die underneath this thing, or we're going to have to flee. And that's how it is that they resisted. And in the end, they did win. They won at least a temporal peace. Let's go back to our text. We've got about five minutes. And I, I really am very proud that I could only get uh, five verses. Um, verse 18 here comes a real kicker. Slaves, submit yourself to your masters with all respect, not only to those who are good and considerate, but also to those who are harsh. For it is commendable if a man bears up under the pain of unjust suffering because he is conscious of God. But how is it to your credit if you receive a beating for doing wrong and endure it? But if you suffer for doing good and you endure it, this is commendable before God. To this you were called because Christ suffered for you, leaving you as an example that you should follow in his steps. He committed no sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. When they hurled their insults against him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree so that he, we might die to sins and live for righteousness by his wounds you have been healed, for we, for you were all like sheep going astray, but now you have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. <clears throat> now, how in the world could we say that this is a wonderful Christian thing to tell people 
to live and to accept unjust suffering. Well, have you ever had a bad teacher? Somewhat, right? And if you had a bad teacher, see, this is back in the early days, back in the days of the ancients, right? I, I think I've mentioned this. That when I was in sixth grade, um, my, te- my teacher told me that she was going to call my mother. And I went home and I took the phone off the hook. <laughs> Scared to death because there was no such thing as a child who had a case before a parent if a teacher called. Um, that was with authority. Nowadays, when the teacher calls, the parents will oftentimes say, What'd you do wrong that caused my child to not fulfill the requirements of the class? Right? Um, it, is a, it is a lesson to say to a kid sometimes, you know, your teacher's not being fair. Take it. Now, he says, you need to be conscious of God. And, of course, he's talking about slaves. Slaves are even in a worse situation because you know, you could be, as a runaway slave, you could be killed, right? So, uh, we are, um, we are, as Christians, required to spend some amount of suffering as we have to endure even unjust governments. So, this is, uh, this is our little Selena, who is, um, his grandmother just passed away this uh, as a week and a half ago, I guess it was, right, Selena? And uh, you, if you don't recognize her, it's because she, when she was a confirmation student, she just looked like she was shrunk. Um, she was a lot smaller. Anyway, and we, so our condolences to you. And then now I, you're, you're married, and this is your husband, and his name is? Jorge. Jorge. Yeah, it's... Uh, for those of you that don't know how to spell Jorge, uh, I think it's J-O-R-G-E, right? Yeah. I met Jorge's mother this last week, and she's that's a very, very sweet lady. So congratulations. All right. Well, uh, we've kind of kind of come to the end here. And um, we want to I just bear this in mind that the subject of authority is a premier reformation issue. And on the one hand, we are, we, we are confessors that must stand for our faith. We are, in a sense, always a certain, de- a certain degree of contrarianness about us because we have to believe that the pure gospel is our standard. It's our goal. And we have to believe that we have to stand separate from the world and we have to believe that the world has nothing whatsoever to do with our right as Christians to go before God and to hear his word and to receive his sacrament. However, on the other hand, we also know that even within the temporal realm, that this is one area that we have to be very careful about our so-called days of insurrection or our pushback, and even to the point where sometimes we have to accept injustice and do so with dignity, because in doing so, what happened in Rome, you, can, you have to understand Rome probably was converted more by the silent suffering of our saints as they bore up under unjust treatment than by what it is that anybody said.
because by seeing how they bore up under unjust punishments and sin suffering, they started to ask the question, who are these people who can turn the other cheek? Who are these people that can say, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do? Who are these people that can actually walk into death and they are more than willing to do so because they know exactly who it is that they're going to be with? We just don't want to be people who sell out because we say, well, you know, we might lose our tax-exempt status. We've got, to, we've got to be willing to stand up for the truth. All right, let's um, close with a prayer. Lord God, Heavenly Father, we pray that we as your Christian people might live within this world in peace, that we might show respect for temporal authority, for we know that these authorities have been instituted by you for the purpose of punishing those who are wrongdoers and for rewarding those who are obedient to those natural laws and things which have become part of our social contract. But we pray that when that authority goes bad, that you would give to us the patience to rightly confess, but at the same time to also accept whatever unjust punishment there is, because we know that we are your children, and in doing so we will show this world where truth is truly to be found. In your church, we pray for the purity of your word. We pray for the purity of your sacraments. We pray that we may stand separate and apart from the world and that your word would not be bound, but a free course and be preached to the joy and the edifying of Christ's holy people. To that end, Lord, keep us steadfast in this one true faith. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.